Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. When I was growing up, my, my parents were not big fans of allowance. Um, I think it was primarily because we didn't have much money. But I, I also think it was because they thought allowance is basically just like getting money for being alive. And uh, they weren't big fans of that. They like, were about hard work and you earn what you get um, and other stuff that I really didn't care at all about when I was five years old. But they were super into it. What I did care about when I was five years old was stuff and things and toys. And when I found out you needed money to buy stuff, I started to care about money too. And when I brought up allowance to my parents, they acted like I was crazy. I remember them saying something like, your allowance is us allowing you to live rent-free in this house. That is allowance. We allow you to do that. But I kept pushing. I remember this one night. She kept pushing. Come on, other kids get it, blah, blah, blah. And they finally said, okay, we'll think about it, which was not a great thing for them to say. That, That never really went well. But we'll think about it. We'll talk about it in the morning. So I couldn't really sleep that night. I was super excited about maybe I'm going to get an allowance in the morning, be able to buy some stuff. So I wake up, I go in for breakfast, I, I open the fridge, and before I can even get the fridge open, I notice that there's something on my fridge that I've never seen before. And it's this big piece of paper, and on the top it says, want ads, really big, in my mom's handwriting, okay? And under that, it had different jobs with different amounts of money. Things like vacuum the house, 50 cents. Clean the garage, 75 cents. Water the flowers, 25 cents. Not only was this the first time I realized my mom was kind of (laughs) cheap, it was my first exposure to something that we commonly call a contract. You see, a contract is simply an agreement between two or more parties where everyone promises to hold up their end of the bargain. A contract says, if you do this, then I'll do that. But if you don't do this, then I won't do that. If I clean the garage, then I got 75 cents. If I didn't clean the garage, then I didn't get 75 cents. We've been making contracts really since we came out of the womb. I make them with my kids all the time. Hey, if you clean up all your toys, I'll let you watch a TV show before bed. Hey, if you eat all your vegetables, you can get some dessert after dinner's over. I actually don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that our entire Western society is basically built on contracts. If you think about it, we agree to a contract every time we accept a job. We we agree to the terms. We usually sign something. Here's how much we're going to get paid. Here's what we're going to do in exchange for that pay. We do this when we rent an apartment. We do it when we buy a house. Think about it. Even every time we download an app, we agree to a contract. None of us read them, but they're there. And we click them, and we've agreed to a contract. Actually, every time we buy anything from a store, we are entering into a contract. You see, the receipt is evidence of our contract. It even lists the terms of the contract. It has what you bought and how much you paid for it. And that's why you keep the receipt, because if what you bought doesn't really turn out to work, you can take it back and you can say, look, this is the contract that we had. I bought this, it was, I paid this for it, 
it doesn't work, so I get this amount back. It's a contract, right? And that is something really important to understand about contracts. If one side breaks their promise, then the other side is under no obligation to keep theirs. If my kids don't eat their vegetables, they don't get any dessert. If I don't pay my rent, the apartment usually doesn't let me keep living there. If the thing I buy doesn't work, the store usually gives me my money back. If you don't do your end of the contract, the other person doesn't have to do theirs. Contracts have been around a really long time. We even find examples of them in Scripture. But the most common type of agreement in the biblical story is not a contract. It's something called a covenant. And those are different. In fact, a lot of people understand the entire narrative of Scripture, kind of the big overarching biblical story through the lens of these different covenants. We're going to spend our time together this morning look at one of the mo- looking at one of the most important of these covenants between God and a guy named Abraham. But before we jump in, I want to catch us up a little bit. This is week three of a series we're calling He First Loved Us, and it's all about this never-ending love that God has for humanity. So last week, we looked at that fateful day when Adam and Eve chose to turn their backs on the love of God in the Garden of Eden. We saw that even on their worst day, God loved them unconditionally. Even when they chose not to love God, God chose to love them. He picks them up after the fall, he dusts them off, and he welcomes them back into his love, back into his family. And then he goes a step further, and he actually promises to send this Savior that is eventually going to defeat the evil that they have unleashed into the world. But the consequences of their choice to go their own way is that they can no longer stay in God's perfect garden. And thus far... What we've seen in these two weeks of this story, and as we've looked at the biblical story, we've seen that God's love is unwavering. But when we get to Abraham's part of the story, things are way worse than they've ever been. Because outside the garden, humanity continues this downward spiral of violence and evil and and everything evil kind of spread like, like wildfire through the entire known world. It starts with Adam and Eve's own children. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel, and even though God warns him, Cain lets his anger rule over him. He gives in to the influence of evil, and he murders his brother. Right after that, we hear the story of one of Cain's descendants, a guy named Lamech. And he has so turned his back on the love of God and given into the influence of evil, he actually writes a song about all the women he abuses and all the men that he's killed. He brags about it. He, he loves that he is this evil. Things keep spiraling downward as a pattern of people refusing to God's love and embracing the influence of evil over and over and over again. Everything kind of reaches its apex in this city called Babylon. Now you see, Babylon, both literally and figuratively, is used throughout the biblical story as a picture of what it looks like when people completely turn their backs on God and go their own way and open themselves up to the influence of evil. In Babylon in Genesis 11, we have a somewhat familiar story called the Tower of Babel. The leaders in Babylon, they, they believe that they can be equal with God. If they build this huge tower, they can get up to the heavens, not only equal with God, like because they're high up like God is high up, but because they'll show that they are great and powerful, 
And they can do this because of this relatively new technology they've invented called bricks. And so they can build things really quickly and really stably, and they can get really high. And they think this is their ticket to becoming like God. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve, that's kind of the same temptation that the serpent gave them, right? Be like God. And so this is continued. And these leaders in Babylon want to build this huge tower. And obviously this is upsetting to God, but he doesn't kill them. He doesn't really punish them. He doesn't knock down their tower and yell at them. In a demonstration of incredible grace, God decides to confuse their languages so they can no longer work together, and he scatters them all over the earth. But even after people get scattered, they begin to form these factions like we always see that they do. And just 13 chapters after God created this perfect, amazing world, humanity, his crowning creative achievement, is at war with itself. All of these factions have gone off in their own areas and have now declared war on each other. You see, these are the natural consequences of turning our backs on the love of God and giving in to the influence of evil. But thank God, he's not ready to give up on humanity just yet. Just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, God keeps pursuing humanity with his love. And he does it by making an agreement. And it's a covenant agreement, like we just talked about a second ago. He does it with a man named Abram, who later goes by Abraham. We see this covenant between God and Abraham in Genesis 12. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up or your phone. Genesis chapter 12. We'll be there and a little bit in chapter 15 as well. Here's what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the really key part of this. He's going to bless Abraham and Abraham's family to be a blessing to the whole world. So Abram went as the Lord told him. So God makes this covenant with Abraham in which his promise is to, like I said, bless the whole world through Abraham's offspring. And Abraham's promise is to leave what he's known and go where God leads him. God is restoring his relationship with one family so he can begin restoring his relationship with all the families all over the world. This is the covenant agreement. God promises to do that. Abraham promises to follow God while he does that. And Abraham agrees to this covenant. He promises to to trust God and to shepherd his family the way God asks him to. But literally six verses later, Abraham stops trusting God and he goes back to starting to do things his own way. Chapter 12 still, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So Abraham convinces his wife, Sarai, or later called Sarah, to lie and say that she's actually his sister and not his wife. So that's exactly what happens the rest of the story. They arrive in Egypt. Pharaoh takes her to be his wife because he's like, hey, wow, you're so beautiful. And Abraham's like, yeah, she is, just my sister. I don't know. That's, you know. If you want to marry her, that's totally fine with me. And so Pharaoh does that. He takes her, and she becomes Pharaoh's wife. This is just the beginning, though. Like each of us, Abraham has his ups and downs, his faithful and unfaithful moments, but he fails to uphold his end of the covenant, and it's broken. He breaks his side of the covenant. A few chapters later, 
Abraham is still walking in this up and down of life, dealing with the kind of out of control, spiraled downward world that he lives in. And he starts doubting. He starts doubting that God is really going to come through on God's end of the covenant. And we read a story like this and we think something like, of course Abraham should be doubting. He didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And if he didn't hold up his end, then God doesn't have to hold up his end either, right? But remember, this agreement isn't a contract like we're used to. It's a covenant. And contracts and covenant are different in some really radical ways. It's a hard concept for us to wrap our mind around. Because of our context and our culture and our society, we are so ingrained in the idea of contract that understanding a covenant is incredibly difficult. So I brought a chart with you, with me, to show you some of the major differences between contract and covenant. See, contract, what we're used to is kind of an exchanging of goods or services. I agree to do this and you get this in return, or I agree to pay this and you get that in return. But a covenant is an exchanging of promises. A contract is legal. Usually there's some type of an agreement, there's something written down, signatures made, but that's not what a covenant is. A covenant is spiritual. It's kind of higher than just legal. A contract is built on suspicion. What I mean by that is you enter into a contract because you're a little bit suspicious that the other end is not going to do their side of the contract. So a contract keeps you safe because you're a little suspicious. Covenant's different. It's built on complete and total trust between the two parties. Contracts really, if you think about it, they're designed to be broken. They're written in case they are broken. That's the reason that they are there. But covenants are designed to be kept, and not just kept for a little while, kept until they are completely fulfilled, regardless of what happens. And that's the last piece. Contracts are conditional. They are based on the behavior of both parties. Covenants are not. Covenants are unconditional. I don't know about you, but I look at that chart and I think, no wonder we don't use covenants anymore. No one would keep them. If we did, if we did covenants, no one would keep them. No, nothing would get done. We don't have a category for unconditional agreement that we promise to uphold even if our covenant partner doesn't. We, we just don't have a category for something like that, most of us. But this is what people did in the ancient Near East, and it's what God does with humanity. And in our story, God senses Abraham's fear, his, his doubt about, is this covenant really real? Is God really going to hold up his end since I haven't held up mine? And so God visits Abraham to remind him of how this whole covenant thing works. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Remember, the promise that God said was that I will give you this great family, all these descendants, and that through them the entire world will be blessed. But up until this point, Abraham didn't have any descendants, and because of the law of the time, that meant that a servant in his household would be his heir. But then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
Now, the next part of this story is really strange to us, and I just want to prepare you for it, because we are so far removed from ancient context and culture, but it's, it's vitally important, not only to Abraham's story here, but to our story too, because it's this beautiful picture of who our God is and how he deals in covenant relationship with humanity, how deeply he loves us. Verse 8, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know that I'll, I'll have the heirs and the, the descendants like the number of the stars? How can I know? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. It's kind of a weird twist in the story, right? It's feeling really beautiful there for a second. God's like, count the stars. See how many descendants you'll have. Bring these five animals to me and slaughter them in half. It just feels weird to us, right? We don't have any context or culture for this. But this wouldn't be weird for Abraham or really for anyone else in the ancient Near East. They would have understood exactly what was happening. Because what's happening right here is God is deepening the covenant between himself and Abraham through something called a blood covenant. This was a fairly common practice in ancient culture. Animals were cut in half and then arranged opposite each other in a parallel line so that a walkway would be created between the two halves. Then both parties entering into the blood covenant would walk in between the animals, down the pathway, a symbolic way of saying, I am entering this covenant with you. And if I do not hold up my end of the bargain, may I die like these animals have died. It was a serious thing. It was a heavy thing. Pretty intense. And I imagine Abraham is a little hesitant as he prepares the blood covenant, right? Especially knowing he broke the last covenant with God like eight seconds after he went into it with him. But this is when the story gets really, really good. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So this is God in the form of a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch walking through the blood covenant pathway all by himself. All by himself. I love how it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and Abram was asleep while it happened. Because God already knows that Abram and his descendants won't keep the promises that they make. This is a one-way blood covenant. I love how Portland pastor John Mark Comer talks about this moment in his book called God Has a Name. He said, this is Yahweh, that's another name for God, a Jewish word for God. This is Yahweh's way of saying that even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the bargain, he'll still keep his promise. He'll rescue and save the world through his soon-to-be nation, no matter the cost. Listen, God knows humanity can't keep their end of the covenant and he chooses to make the covenant anyway. God knows that Abraham, that his descendants, that you and me cannot keep the covenant that we enter into with him, and he chooses to make it anyway. This isn't the first or last time God will do this with a covenant in humanity, knowing that we will be unable to hold up our end of the bargain. You see, he makes one with Adam and Eve. 
He promises them that humanity will be God's image-bearing representatives, that they will rule over the world, and that the offspring of Eve will crush the evil that they unleash into the garden. He makes one with Abraham that we just saw. He promises that he will have this huge family and that through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He makes one with the nation of Israel. And he promises that they will be his representatives to show grace and hope and love to the world. He makes one with King David. Promises that someone from his lineage will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing to every tribe and tongue and nation. In each of these covenants, God's human partner, whether it's Adam and Eve, Abraham, the ancient nation of Israel, or King David, they have a responsibility. They have an end of the agreement that they are supposed to be holding up. And guess what? They never do. Not even once. In fact, if you go back and read the stories, most of these covenants are broken by humanity just hours or days after they are entered into. I remember the story of the covenant with the nation of Israel. If you know this story, just go along with me, right? So Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, and he's given the big stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and God enters into this covenant with them. Moses is on the mountain, it says, 40 days and 40 nights, and it even says that the people below, they can see where Moses is. They can see the cloud of God descended on top of Mount Sinai. He's up there for like a month receiving the covenant from God. He's in the middle of that, and the people down below are like, he's been gone a super long time. I I don't know if he's coming back. This God that just freed us from slavery in Egypt, I see the cloud up there, but it could just be a storm. We don't know, right? Let's make a golden calf. Let's worship that. Like the covenant hadn't even been fully inaugurated yet, and the people are like, nah, I think we want to go our own way. If that's not humanity in a nutshell, guys, I don't know what is. But he chooses to covenant with us anyway. He chooses to covenant with us anyway. And he never fails to make good on his promises. Our God is the great covenant keeper. We keep breaking covenants and he keeps making them. Even when we fail to come through on our end, he never fails to come through on his end. This is the character of our God. It's who he is. And I know this because of his actions. I know this because I've seen it time after time throughout the biblical story. He has come through on his promises. I've seen it in my life, in your lives. I've seen it in the lives of my friends and family that he comes through when he says he's going to come through. But I also know this to be true because when God revealed himself to humanity in the Old Testament, this is how he described himself. This is the characteristic he labeled himself with. It happens when God is making that covenant with the people of Israel through Moses I just talked about. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, this is God talking about himself, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, obviously, we could spend an entire message walking through each of these characteristics that God lists about himself, but I want to focus in on one phrase here. That is abounding in love. See, every week so far in our He First Loved Us series, we've talked about this verse from 1 John in the New Testament. 
It says, we know and rely on the love God has for us because God is love. God is love. This means that love isn't just something that God does. Love is who God is. But listen, God didn't just become love in the New Testament. He has always been and will always be love. As this verse says, God abounds in love. This word here for love is the Hebrew term hesed. And it's a word that we find all over the, New Test- the Old Testament. And last week, you remember if you were here, we talked about the Greek language of the New Testament and how our translation of the Greek word for love is, is kind of lacking because there are actually like four, maybe even six Greek words for love and we really only have one. It's the same for Hebrew. This Hebrew word hesed is way deeper than just our English word for love. It's so much richer than our translation even allows for. Here's how Hebrew scholar Daniel Block describes it. He says, the Hebrew hesed cannot be translated with only one English word. This is a covenant term, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Hesed is a covenant term. Hesed is unconditional love. It is a steadfast, unwavering commitment to the covenant partner, regardless of what the covenant partner does. It is God's promise to never stop coming after us, to never stop pursuing us with his perfect love, even when we turn our backs on him. Y'all, Hesed is God walking through the blood covenant pathway while we are still asleep. That's what Hesed is. I want to read you guys the rest of that John Mark Comer quote from earlier. It says, it's Yahweh's way of saying that even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the bargain, he'll still keep his promise. He'll rescue and save the world through his soon-to-be nation, no matter the cost. That's the first part. Listen to the second. And if blood has to be spilled, it won't come from Abraham. It will come from Yahweh himself. He's willing to die and become like these animals just to keep his promise to bring the world back to life. If blood needs to be spilled as a result of this covenant being broken, God himself will be the one to spill it. Does that sound like a familiar story to anyone? That's the story of Jesus. Now this is, it's so good, it's, it's so beautiful It's so sacrificially loving that it's honestly difficult for us to even comprehend. But but I just want to I just want to implore you to like close your eyes and let this next part really sink in for you for a second. God doesn't just hold up his end of the covenant despite our failure. He holds up our end too. It would be amazing enough if God just kept his promise, even when we broke ours, but it's deeper than that. He doesn't just keep his promise, he keeps our promises too. Because you see, while humanity was floundering in sin, totally unable to fulfill the covenants that we'd agreed to, God was still in pursuit of us with his love. And as the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, we're introduced to Jesus Christ. Now, you may not know much about Jesus, and you may think that Christ is just his last name, but in fact, it's not. It's a title, and it means Messiah. It means Savior of the world. We are told that this Jesus, the Christ, is the last Adam, 
fulfilling the covenant with Adam and Eve by doing what the first Adam was unable to do, trusting God. We are told that he's from the family of Abraham. So he is the one descended from Abraham that will bless the entire world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite, the first and only person able to truly obey the law and fulfill the covenant on behalf of the people of Israel. And finally, we are told that he is the king from the line of David who rules God's way and brings about God's kingdom, fulfilling the covenant God made with King David. Wow. How is Jesus, just this guy, able to do all of these things? Because he's not just this guy. Jesus is God. He is is divine with skin on. He is God put on flesh. You see, God left the perfection of heaven, came to the brokenness of earth, put on human flesh as the person of Jesus, and fulfilled all of the covenants that we couldn't. Think about it like this. If a covenant is a handshake agreement and God sticks his hand down from heaven and every time humanity grabs it and they shake hands and every single time humanity breaks off, says, I wanted to do it, but, but I just can't. I wanted to follow you, but I'm going to go my own way. I wanted to really accept your love, but, but I'm going to look for love somewhere else. Jesus, God with skin on, comes down, puts on human flesh, and extends his human hand on our behalf to shake God's. And the covenant that we broke is fulfilled. Not just on God's end, but on our end, too. He is so good. He doesn't just keep his promises when we break ours. He fixes our broken promises, too. And that's what next week is going to be all about in this series. We're going to talk about Jesus coming to earth. We're going to talk about God's love in the incarnation, God's love with skin on. But this morning, as we wrap up, I want each of us to understand that God in skin as the person of Jesus And God, who makes covenants with humanity in the Old Testament, are one and the same. They're one and the same. If there is a seeming divide between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, it's not because God is different or God is erratic. It's because we have misunderstood or misinterpreted something, more than likely something in the Old Testament. We've misunderstood the culture. We've misunderstood the context. We've looked at a story like the blood covenant, And we've said, oh my gosh. You just pull that out, you're like, this God's a monster. He like cuts animals in half, just for fun. But when you understand what's actually happening, that's not true. You see, in that culture, animals were currency. That's how they exchanged goods. That's how they made contracts. And God said, this isn't a contract, this is a covenant. This is a blood covenant. And when you understand that, the beauty of who God is comes out. There's no divide Between these two gods, they are one and the same. They are loving, but they aren't just loving. They are love. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is love. I love the way that Brennan Manning says it. He says, God is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single, relentless stance toward us. He loves us love that. He has a single, relentless stance toward us. 
Our God is love. He is a God of covenants, not of contracts. His commitment to us and to our good is eternal and unconditional. Even when we break his covenants, he keeps making them. Even when we break our promises, he keeps his. Even when we can't hold up our end, he holds up our end for us. Even when we don't love him, he never, ever stops loving us. One of the Christian authors I admire most in the world is the late Rachel Held Evans. In her book, Inspired, she says something that has become a quote that I go back to over and over and over again. I had kind of a long, kind of a rough week, and I went back to this quote, totally divorced from this sermon. But it gave me such encouragement this week about God's faithfulness and his love that I wanted to share it with you too. Here's what she says. Should all other identities or securities be thrown into tumult, Should nations be fractured and temples torn down, this truth remains. God is with us and God is for us. It's a story as true now as it was then. Should everything else in our lives fall apart? Should our nation crumble? Should the things that we've put our faith in here on earth fail us? Should we lose people that we love? Should relationships be broken that we've put so much effort into? Should we lose jobs that provided? Should we miss out on promotions that we worked our butts off for? Should everything else fall down around us? We can rest in the fact that God is with us and that God is for us. And that is as true now as we sit here as it was when Jesus came to earth, laid his life down, as it was when God made that covenant with Abraham. You can rest in that this morning, no matter what it is you're walking through. God is with us and God is for us now and forever. Let's pray.